something about the insularity of the United States and the the myths we tell ourselves that we're the greatest country on earth and all this stuff has kept us from realizing that we're actually pretty crappy on a lot of stuff. And <laughs> yeah. we, we could be doing a lot better. And our quality of life, even for people with, with pretty good incomes, isn't really that great. This is the Wicked Problems Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ostrike. Today I'm sitting down with Gawain Kripke. He's a two-time contributor to the Wicked Problems Collaborative. Gawain, can you introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, I'm Gawain Kripke. I'm in Washington, D.C., currently unattached. That is to say I'm consulting and have different clients, mostly philanthropies, and nonprofits, but I spent decades in the nonprofit advocacy sector working on international development and also environmental issues. Let's start with your chapter in book two. Can you tell us what you were trying to get at? Yeah, so I've been really interested in unpaid care work, the work that keeps society moving, keeps families alive, that's mostly done by women and is real work and adds value, but is completely uncompensated and mostly unrecognized by society. The COVID crisis has really shined a bright light on this kind of work and the in- inequities of care, who provides care, the fact that it's not compensated, the fact that society doesn't support it. So I was reflecting on the care crisis that has emerged in the pandemic, but also trying to think a little bit more abstractly about care and why it is that social policy does so little to support caregivers and also care receivers. The purpose of my essay is to try to abstract from the acute problem that we've been facing under COVID, which is that care has been neglected and that a lot of families are really scrambling because they can't figure out care solutions for their kids or for people who need home-based care or even for elderly people who need care. Care is a service and care is a relationship, but care is also an ethic. And I was trying to point out that families have to prioritize care. And that's why we see a lot of women falling out of the paid workforce because they have to stay home and take care of their kids or their parents or whoever needs care in their families. And so they make an, an ethical choice about how to spend their time and how to apply their labor. And that is a decision within households or or by individuals, but it should also be a public policy question. And we need policymakers to be prioritizing care and care relationships and not just seeing this as a simple matter of services provided, but also valuing this work and these relationships and finding ways for policy to support them rather than ignore them or just provide small amounts of sort of accessory support. So what I'm proposing is that care ethics be applied, not just for individuals or households, but for policymakers generally. Yeah, I remember when we were having our first kid, my wife had to go back to work quickly, maybe two to three weeks after he was born. She went back for a short period of time and we quickly realized that there was virtually no difference in our finances once you netted out the cost of care against her income. So she stopped working at that point and stayed home to take care of them. There was nothing, no policy support of any kind. It was all on her own. 
find a way to make it work. I just don't want other people to have to go through that. I would like to be part of a community that takes care of each other. When you have children, you should have time with them and take care of them and get them to be good community members and not have to make these choices where it's a struggle yeah, either way. I completely agree. I, I think it's great when parents want to stay home to be with their kids, take care of them it, as a choice. But for most families, it's not a choice. It's, a, it's either forced upon them by economics or they just yeah. don't have any other option. A society that allows people more choices and easier ways to provide care, either directly or through yeah. the market or through public services, that's, that's a society that we're trying to, to create. I think if we had those choices, I think my wife would have chosen to stay home. It just would have been a choice that we would have preferred instead of having a difficult choice because neither yeah. option worked yeah. well for us. That's the conversation you often have. It's a circular conversation is shouldn't you, shouldn't you want to stay home with, with your young children? And the answer is yes, I want to, but I don't want to have to. <laughs> and I think different people, different families should make different choices based on their preferences and also their needs. But right now, there's no support for those sort of decisions. It goes one way, and we completely abandon families, especially from sort of age zero to four until they get into the, into the public school system. And even then, it's really hard. So it's just a different vision for how society operates and what the purpose of policy and public spending is. I guess it's similar to the unemployment thing where we'll give you unemployment for a certain amount of time, but if any job is offered to you, you have to take it. We're just foisting misery on so many people yeah. with that. I mean, the vision of government as providing a low-paid workforce to business, <laughs> that's what apparently a lot of the Republican governors have, is that a government is not to provide options and support for people. It's to provide employees to employers. And that's not my vision for society or for what the role of government is. There's a lot of people in sort of Generation Z well, I mean, I think it's facing a lot of families where they call it the sandwich generation, where they're now facing this demographic bulge of people entering their older years and needing some amount of attention or care at the same time as they're raising their own families with their own kids. And so the care responsibilities are really proliferating. We seeing we have to take care of our parents and make sure they're that they're safe and getting the care they need. And then we have our own kids and then we have our own jobs. And it's just really untenable. And it points out that care is this responsibility that that people generally are not willing to sacrifice, even for jobs or income. But the squeeze is intense on families. Not every family, because every family is situated slightly differently. So it's hard to it's hard to make you know, categorical generalizations, but most families face a situation like this at some point. It's hard to understand in a nation as wealthy as the U.S. is how so much work is just taken for granted. Well, it's not unique to the United States. Most societies, I think, don't really recognize or support care very well because most care is seen as a basically a private domestic interaction within households. And the whole field of economics has never really wrestled with the idea that this is work, real labor that, uh, that should be somehow incorporated into economic analysis. Usually the unit of analysis is a household. So household, beyond the, the doorstep, uh, there's no analysis. So who does the unpaid work within households is never really wrestled with. And so that's almost the large majority of that work is done by women 
it's a big issue. It's something that feminist analysis and feminist economists have been wrestling with and, and writing about for decades, but it's never really breached the broader discourse until recently. And now I think there's a lot more debate about it. That's good. Hopefully it helps us change things. It's kind of reminiscent of some of the ways we look at the environment. From an economic perspective, where we take it for granted, or we just see it as a lump of value that we can use however we like. Yeah, there are some interesting parallels between how uh, environmental assets, which are, you can see them as public goods or as common assets, and care, uh, which is also a public good, with but that's privately managed, um, are there, there's some parallels between them, but also some differences. So, and which is a uh, an issue that some of the left is wrestling with, and how to how to unite sort of the care economy and a climate climate sensitive economy. Yeah, I guess that's something we need to learn more about because there's so much that's done that we need to do a better job of appreciating. How about we go on to the pandemic? What do you think about the current state of affairs in the world? We seem to be heading in different directions in different parts of it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this this is a very dangerous moment in sort of world history where we actually have the tools to end this pandemic everywhere, but we're only really applying those tools in rich countries and among rich people. And so we're seeing potentially a great divergence, which is a term that actually the IMF has been using to describe the world, a health divergence where some part of the world will be post-pandemic while the pandemic will continue to rage in other parts of the world. And also an economic divergence where some parts of the world will be sort of getting back to normal and economic growth is is really fast now. Re- returning to normal in the U.S. and poorer parts of the world will be mired in pandemic and having a lot of trouble recovering. That divergence, no, I don't think we know what the implications of it, but it doesn't seem good. The interesting thing for me that I've been concerned about since learning about the potential challenges of variants is that we don't seem to have taken them seriously from the start. And we've kind of opened this massive laboratory for experimentation with the virus. And we're starting to see more and more variants that look problematic. And while it seems like some parts of the world are coming out of this, it could come roaring back really fast if something gets outside of the control of these vaccines. We're already seeing lower protection with certain variants and certain vaccines, but we haven't seen anything that was really, really bad from that perspective. But it's a continual roll of the dice where we're hoping nothing bad happens. Yeah, so the, the longer we wait, the bigger the risk is that the vaccines lose their efficacy or that something, something else happens that's bad. So I agree with you that we really need to treat this as a global crisis and not sort of dribble out vaccines over the course of a couple of years to the rest of the world. And President Biden has described the United States as the arsenal of vaccines, which which sounds okay. It's modeled on the United States during the World War II when the U.S. was the arsenal of democracy, where we supplied the munitions to fight fascists. And I think it's a mental model that people like, but it actually doesn't work at all for for the pandemic because we can't rely on the U.S. just to produce the world's vaccines both because it's it's already proven itself to not be the, uh, an effective way to make sure that everyone has vaccines. And we just don't have the capacity. We need to bring a lot more capacity into production to deal with this pandemic quickly. We, we need a lot more production, and it needs to be not just in the U.S. or in rich countries generally. It seems like there's quite a bit of idle capacity around the world, that if we waived IP and companies had to share the know-how to get this thing going, it would probably take six months to get a lot of those sites up and running, 
But imagine if we doubled or tripled the production, how that might change things. I don't know how much capacity is lying idle, but it continues to ramp up just on the base of the companies with the IP working out deals. But a wartime mobilization starting six months ago? I think we'd be in a very different situation from the one we're in right now. That's right. And it's, it's deeply frustrating that the U.S. and other developed countries sort of took care of their own production needs and then sort of stopped. And if, if we'd started six months ago, we'd have a lot more production online. But we need to start now because right now the forecasts are we're not going to get vaccines to everybody for two or three years. And we don't want to wait around that long, both because, as you say, the virus is going to evolve. And also because we really want the world to grow together rather than grow apart. They're talking about boosters. We don't have enough capacity to get things out to people fast enough as it is, and now we're at risk of Western production facilities switching over to a booster shot and cutting capacity for the people who haven't had their first round yet. So I'm just super frustrated with the circumstances, and the other day I saw that Pfizer is charging like $19 a shot right now, but their plan is down the road to charge $180 for boosters, and I just wanted to throw something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the depravity of the pharmaceutical industry, which is both life-saving in its effect, but extremely predatory in its operation is one of these complex problems that we have in, in the world. I tend to side with being more forceful and more skeptical of the pharmaceutical companies. And yet it is a, a bit of a golden goose because you don't want to lose the, the capacity and they, they are producing literally life-saving and miracle drugs. So that's one of the big complexities of our, of our time, I think. If you look at the amount of money that was invested in these vaccines, and the U.S. government is a partial owner of the patent that the mRNA vaccines were based on, and yet we're not doing anything to force their hand to open this up to more people. It's, it's very frustrating. Yes. 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 Very frustrating. And then to have the, um, the companies be resistant to efforts to expand production and fighting this old ideological fight about IP at the World Trade Organization, it, first of all, it feels like a throwback to the 90s when we were having the same fight around AIDS treatment. So it's just everything old is new again. We, have a, we haven't seemed to advance that far in this debate. It's very frustrating. It was also the Gates Foundation with the work they did to take the Oxford vaccine out of what would have been open sourced. You take that one and it's open source and it changes everything. But he was convinced that everyone would be better off if it was a for-profit effort. And I, yeah, enough about that, I guess. Let's move on to where you see things heading in the future. There seem to be some countries that have taken a step back during the pandemic and are starting to rethink things. People are thinking about what is their relationship with work in their city. There are a lot of positive possibilities floating around, but also a lot of problematic ones. So what do you think about that sort of stuff? Yeah, there's, there's multiple trend lines and they sort of they interact and it's really it's i find it hard to forecast the future on the one hand we've seen cities be much more mindful of public space and the need to preserve people's access to public space and opening streets up to more pedestrian and recreational activities and also to opening streets to restaurants so they can have outdoor patio space in some ways american cities have become nicer more human sized as a result of the pandemic. On the other side, our housing crisis continues and you're seeing families being pushed out in, back into the suburbs uh, to buy housing. I, I think it's a process and a trend that's been going on, but it's not in any way dissipating as a result of COVID and maybe it's accelerating. It's sort of the future of urban form 
is sort of unclear, I think. There, there's some good things and maybe some bad things emerging, and I can't forecast it. I do think that a lot of these mutual aid efforts that happened to, for citizens supporting each other, sometimes with um, public support, but more often just as, as private initiatives, and I think a fair amount of solidarity within society for essential workers and for the elderly who couldn't get out and uh, in some in some cases for kids who were really denied a year of school and and friendships and so forth and that's that's been really refreshing to see how how just citizen movements and 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 solidarity work within the country has has emerged um, those are positives um, and some of it's also bleeding into the public discourse where where public policymakers are saying, look, we need to lock in some of this, some of these changes that we have uh, to improve our, our, our social solidarity with one another. So those are good things, pushing for increased minimum wages and things like that, which, um, which are good. And, and I think it's helped us see more clearly who's essential and who must take bigger risks in order to keep society operating. There are a lot of positive things there. I sat down with Sam Bliss, one of our other contributors, a few weeks ago, and we talked about the food aid program that he was working on, and it sounded really cool. I love hearing stories like that where people are just helping their community, and it's not about how much you can extract out of something. Yeah. For me, a question, I, I love those initiatives, but you never get around the, the power and scale of state action. And so the, I love the sort of autonomous and organic movements among society to help one another. But they're always going to be sort of a patchwork and maybe a, a piloting of something that the state should take over because, because the scale and power of the state will always be bigger and more, more powerful than what citizens can put together. So on the one hand, um, I think it's great. On the other hand, it shouldn't divert us for too long or for too much in trying to make the government do better than they, than they do. I think it can definitely work as a pilot to help show people an example of something different, but totally agreed that we need government action for the big stuff. I ran the zero waste programs for one of the big grocery chains in the U.S. before moving to Thailand. We had a food donation program that gave out millions of meals every year. If it wasn't for the Good Samaritan Act that gave the firm legal protection, I'm certain we wouldn't have gotten permission to run that program. The government action made all the difference there that kept all those meals from going to the landfill. Agreed. How about we move on to the state of U.S. politics? Things are weird right now. I've watched politics closely for many years, and it seemed to be on a steady decline for many years that maybe got steeper, but now it feels like free fall. What's your take? I would say at the, at the beginning of the Trump administration, I started thinking about and trying to find historical parallels to where we are. And I started researching John Brown because I was wondering, what, when is the moment when you actually take up arms <laughs> because you're, you, you don't see other solutions working. John Brown was a pretty interesting and maybe not a great model for action, but I think people like us are constantly on this knife's edge where we're wondering how bad is it and how bad is it going to get? And on the one hand, people are, there's a side that's saying, oh, quit being alarmist. This is within normal behavior in a democracy things go back and forth a bit don't be too paranoid and then on the other hand it can feel like 1933 in the US or some historical parallel and i go back and forth i don't know how bad things are it's hard for me to assess it looks bad 
it feels bad. It feels like one political party in the United States has become effectively an ethno-nationalist party, which is pursuing anti-democratic measures all over the country, seemed pretty willing to overthrow an election if they could have, have not recanted in any way all those actions. So that doesn't seem good. On the other hand, it, they didn't overthrow the election and a more liberal democratic party is in power at the moment, at least nationally. So I go back and forth on how bad things are, but it, the trends are not good. The Republican party in particular seems to be veering rightward in authoritarian, ethno-nationalist and anti-democratic ways with almost no breaks to it. And the parts of that party that seem to hold it back are being purged. So it seems very problematic for the future. And I don't know where it'll go. And I, I, don't, I don't personally know how alarmed to be about it, but it, I don't criticize people who are pretty alarmed. I remember back in the weeks following the insurrection, Rep Meyer from Michigan wrote something about his experience. The thing that really stuck with me from that is he noted that one of his colleagues admitted that the idea that Trump had won the election was false, but he feared for his family and he feared for his life and couldn't vote against the people who wanted him to overturn the election. That was the moment when I said, oh shit, we are in real trouble here. I know there are plenty of people in the party who are going to be on board for whatever comes their way, but when the guys who are more moderate are fearing for their lives, if that's really happening, you've basically lost any moderation in that party is my fear. And I think it's going to be a steady decline from there. Either you get rid of the filibuster and you make the sort of changes that need to be done to keep them from perverting the outcomes of elections, or they pervert the next two elections and we're potentially dealing with a minority party ruling undemocratically. So that's kind of where I'm at now, and it's scary. It is, it is frightening, and it's also like deeply disappointing because one of the things you hope to see out of politicians is courage and the ability to stand up when called upon to for, ba for first principles, democracy and, and so forth. You, what you see in that statement in a lot of Republican leaders is fear and a lack of courage to stand up. All these murmurings about, well, they know they shouldn't do this, but they have to because X, Y, or Z. And that's, that's the opposite of political courage. That's cowardice. You wonder why are you in politics if you're not going to stand up on principle? And I do think this says something about sort of the political cohort that has come into the Republican Party, which is really a very corporatist idea of what politics is that has very little about policy or principles involved, but much more about an allegiance to party without any substantive goal except power itself. And so why are, why are these, these people running for office? Do they have any agenda or goal other than securing power? So that's a, that's a problem. And it's, like I say, it's disappointing sort of on a personal level, like these people, what, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? It's not a good sign. It's obviously a bad sign. And most of the Republicans who have any kind of principle that guided their political career are being drummed out or voluntarily resigning from their positions. That's worrisome stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Let's try to end on a high note. What gives you hope right now? I've been really excited and inspired by some of the social movements, really social revolutions that have emerged just in the last couple of years. First and, and foremost is Black Lives Matter, which is a huge social movement and social transformation and reframing of the issue of race in our society. 
although it's still actively debated and you have a lot of resistance, I think the, the sort of social consensus about, about race and inequity and violence is really shifted a lot just in a few years. So I think it's, I think it's good. I'm really excited about it. I think it's very important. Similarly, I think the Me Too movement has been transformational and has changed a lot of workplaces and changed standards of behavior and what, what can and will be tolerated in gender and sex relations. It's happened mostly outside of the political debate or, or policy debate and mostly been a transformation in, in society rather than legislation as such. So those are, those are two examples. I think the, the so-called Overton window of what's politically acceptable, what are considered the realistic possibilities for policy has also shifted in the last few years. The scale and scope of what's being proposed in policy has changed and become a much more ambitious in the last couple of years, especially under this administration. And I don't know if they'll succeed, but the idea that you have a president talking about full employment, hundreds of billions of dollars being proposed to support home-based care and large expansions of health care and, and, and social services is really, really great. And you wouldn't have seen it even you know five or, or uh, years ago, I think. So all of this is really, I think, good. I think there's a lot of really great stuff around us and, a, and an important political moment that we're in the middle of. Gawain, thank you for making time to sit down with me as well as for contributing to the book. I greatly appreciate your support and I wish you all the best. Well, me too. And I, I love what you're doing. So keep it up, Chris. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope it was interesting and that it helped you see something anew. As an independent press, we can use all the help we can get reaching new readers and listeners, so please do share this for us. Also, What Do We Do About the Pandemic will be available on July 4th, but if you're up for giving us a brief, honest review, you can pick up a free copy on BookSirens.com. Thanks again for listening. Eat supplied by Audio Binger.